Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Matthew. We have been moving through Matthew for a year and a month or so. I can't remember exactly how long it's been. And we have come now to the last verses of the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you should feel free to grab one from the back table. Uh, There should be a a couple of Bibles back there. And if you don't own a Bible, I would encourage you not only to take that Bible for use in this service, but keep it, write your name in it, take it home with you, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read, let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we, we need You. We need Your Holy Spirit. We need you to open our hearts and our minds to understand your word. We need you to give us focus even now. We need you to take away all the distractions as we listen. I need you to help uh, me. I need you to take away all the fears as I uh, preach. I pray, Father, that you would come, that you would be with us, that you would be here in this moment at work using your word to shape our hearts and our minds and our lives in a way that brings glory to you and to your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, work right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age." Well, the Gospel of Matthew is, and has been, over the past year, telling us one story from beginning to end. It's one story about a king, a king who has authority over our lives. Now, there are cultures that are comfortable with authority, but ours is not that culture. We live in a culture that tells us to question authority. Uh, to think for yourself and choose your own destiny, write your own story, be your own person, and don't let anybody tell you any different. Authority is almost always viewed in our culture with suspicion. Authority figures, whether politicians or religious leaders or parents, seem to be looking out for themselves, trying to line their own pockets or maintain their own position. The notion that authority can be and is often abused delegitimizes the very notion of authority for many. There's that famous uh, Lord Acton quote, which even if you've never heard of Lord Lord Acton, you've probably heard the quote because it's so much a part of our culture. The quote goes, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we have kind of philosophically just undermined all authority and the bigger the authority, the more we question it. So when Jesus comes on the scene and announces, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, we are skeptical, to say the least. As skeptical as we are about authority, we positively disdain the notion of conquest. Any notion of of one nation or one people or even one ideology conquering another is is anathema to our postmodern mind. The reason our our culture looks, this is the reason that our culture looks at the, the conquest in the Old Testament with such disdain. In the book of Joshua, you may remember, God sent his people Israel into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, to destroy its inhabitants and conquer the land. And many Christians look at that part of the Old Testament and we kind of let out a sigh of relief and we wipe our foreheads and we say, well, at least it's in the Old Testament. There's only one problem with that, and that is that when Jesus stands on that mountain in Galilee and says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me, go make disciples of all nations and I will be with you to the end, Jesus is echoing God's command to Joshua to take the land. And the the similarities are actually pretty striking, but for now, let me just say this. Just as Joshua stood on the border of the promised land and God commissioned him to bring God's authority to bear on the land of Canaan, so now the risen Jesus commissions his people to spread his authority throughout the earth. And really, if you think about it a little bit, this is just an echo of another commission that goes even further back. When God created man and he commanded Adam to fill the earth, subdue it, and to rule. Adam was to manifest God's authority through the whole earth. And so we come to the end of Matthew this morning, and the the passage before us, it's, it's often called the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is really a proclamation of Jesus' authority as the King of heaven and earth. The whole Gospel of Matthew has been moving us to this point, and now we've arrived at this great declaration of the kingship of the resurrected Messiah. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We'll be looking at the the kingship of Jesus. And so if you turn to the back of your bulletin, you see an outline there. There are three things on the outline that we'll look at. We'll look at Jesus' authority itself, Jesus' resurrection authority. We'll look at Jesus' commission and Jesus' presence, his authority, his commission, and his presence. Like we said a moment ago, the Gospel of Matthew is a story about one person. It's about Jesus. Jesus is born, he lives, he teaches, he heals the sick, he casts out demons. He is betrayed, he's accused, he's condemned, he's mocked and beaten and put to death and buried, and then the third day Jesus rises from the dead overturning the order of life as we know it. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and and another Mary. He tells them to tell his disciples to meet him in Galilee. And in Matthew 28, 16, they do just that. Now, Luke, in in the book of Acts, says that Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days. And so at some point during those 40 days, the 11 go to this mountain in Galilee, and they see Jesus... They worship him, according to verse 17, but some doubted. Now, what Matthew is saying is that it's hard for some to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
even with Jesus right there in front of them, they can't believe their eyes. And Matthew includes that, of course, because he's not afraid that the doubts of man are going to somehow undermine the good news of Jesus. So Matthew is honest. He says it's hard for people to believe, even when Jesus stood right in front of them. It's hard for people to believe that Jesus has risen, that death has been conquered, that a new order of life has come. Of course, Jesus continues undeterred in verse 18 when he says to these disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you remember where the book of Matthew began? It uh, began back in chapter 1 with a genealogy. And that genealogy taught us that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus, uh, according to his birthright, is the rightful king of Israel. Uh, the wise men in the beginning of Matthew honor Jesus as the king of the Jews. And there is this sense in which right, Jesus is born as the king of the Jews, but Jesus also died as the king of the Jews. Maybe you remember that, that the charge against him, right, the placard that was above his head on the cross read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So Jesus, by earthly descent, is David, the son of David, the king of Israel. Matthew 28 is not saying that. Matthew 28, Jesus doesn't say, I am the king of Israel. I am the king of the Jewish people. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is now saying that as the son of David, because of his obedience to his father in going to the cross and in bearing the sin of God's people, Jesus, right, the, the man born of Mary, son of David, has now been given all authority in heaven and on earth. If I can put it starkly, right, Jesus died king of the Jews and Jesus rose the king of heaven and earth. Because by his death and his resurrection, Jesus conquered the enemies of God and rose victorious. See, in the resurrection, Jesus shows that, that no earthly power can defeat him. And Ephesians tells us that, that through the resurrection, God exalts Jesus far above every spiritual power and authority in the heavenly places. Jesus has been exalted above every power in heaven and on earth by his resurrection. Now, now, clearly, Jesus, we see him throughout the Gospel of Matthew exercising his divine authority. But in accomplishing his work in the cross and the resurrection, something new has happened. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Daniel, you may remember, in chapter 7, he sees a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he comes to the Ancient of Days, which is a picture of God the Father, God the Father gives this Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. See, there's this moment in time where the Father hands over the kingdom to the God-man Jesus. You may even remember when Jesus was being tried, He said to His accusers that very soon they would see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus knew this moment was coming. Now, it's maybe a little unclear exactly when that moment is. When did Jesus come to the Father and receive the kingdom in this way? Was it at his death on the cross? Was it in his resurrection? 
Uh, my best guess, actually, is that it's in Jesus' ascension. When Jesus comes before the Father in the flesh, as it were. In which case, of course, it hasn't actually happened yet in this point of the story. But Jesus is speaking, you know, the way we often do. Uh, on graduation day, you get all dressed up in your robe and your cap, and your mom comes to you with tears in her eyes, and she says, oh, you're my little graduate, which isn't technically true because you haven't walked across the stage yet, but practically it's true because you've done all the work necessary to walk across that stage. Well, whatever the case, whenever that moment in Daniel 7 took place, Jesus at this point had done all the work that was necessary to be crowned the king of heaven and earth. He had done the work that the Father set before him to do. He, he lived a righteous life, always doing the Father's will. He went to the cross to bear our sin. He satisfied the wrath of the Father. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and Satan and death. He is our victorious king. And the question for each of us right away is, are we willing to acknowledge that? Are we willing to acknowledge that Jesus is our king, that he has authority over our lives, that Jesus has a right to every detail, to every aspect, to every moment, to every possession, every action, every word, every thought? Are you willing to bow your knee to him and to acknowledge him as the ruler of heaven and earth? You know, one of the reasons that we don't like authority in our culture is, as we said, is because of its misuse. Right? Authority can easily be misused. But really, as you read through Matthew and you see the kind of authority Jesus exercises, he's, he's already clarified who benefits from his authority. Maybe you remember back in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus contrasts his authority with the way we see authority exercised in the world. Jesus says this, You know that rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. What he's saying is, look, authority in the world uh, is, is people using their authority to put others down, to boost themselves up. Authority, as we often see it, is, is the one in authority being served by those under authority. But Jesus continues in Matthew 20. He says, It shall not be so among you, among his disciples, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, authority in Jesus' kingdom is used to serve those under authority. Those in authority are the, the greatest servants in the kingdom. That's the language Jesus uses, that he came to serve. Jesus elsewhere says that he has authority on earth to forgive sins, right? So Jesus, on the one hand, uses his authority to ransom us from sin in order to forgive us of our sins. But Jesus can only do those things. He only has authority to do those things because he is the king. And so on the one hand, you can acknowledge him as king for who he is. and You can receive his kingly pardon. Or you can reject him as king and, and take up your stance against God and his kingdom. You can refuse his pardon and know that your guilt remains. So are you willing? Are you willing to acknowledge that, that the resurrected Jesus is the king of heaven and earth? Are you willing to see yourself as one under authority? Are you willing to, to give up the illusion of your own autonomy, your self-rule, that you are not your own? And, and humble yourself before King Jesus 
and receive his kingly pardon and acknowledge him and, and live for him with all of your lives. We are not our own, right? We have a king, King Jesus, who rules over us. Well, I want to move from Jesus' authority to Jesus' commission. Verses uh, verses 19 and 20 are really the most famous verses of, of this section here. Because in these verses, Jesus sets the agenda for the life of the church. And I have to say, as I've been wrestling with these verses over the past week, I'm, I'm, I'm intimidated by them because there's so much that could be said. I hope you don't have lunch plans. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All I'm going to do is skim the surface, right, of what could be said in these verses. And I'm going to do that by talking about four things. Jesus talks about four things in these verses. I, I, I wish I had time to really expand on all of them, but... I don't, but I'm going to talk about four things. I'm going to talk about the goal of Jesus' mission here, the, the, the method of Jesus' mission, the scope of Jesus' mission, and a very important safeguard to Jesus' mission. So the, the, the goal, the method, the scope, and a safeguard. So first, we'll look at the goal. Uh, the goal of Jesus' mission, of course, is making disciples. He says that right up front. Go, therefore, and make disciples. But that brings us to the question, what does that mean, right? What is a disciple? A disciple, as we've seen throughout Matthew, really, a disciple at its simplest is a learner. Now, the problem with that language, especially maybe in our context, is when we hear the word learner, it sounds very academic to us. But being a disciple of Jesus is is more like being enrolled in a trade school than in a Ph.D. program. The language Jesus uses in Matthew to call his disciples is, follow me. And the goal is not simply to learn facts about Jesus, but to follow Jesus into a way of life. Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, discipleship is is following Jesus into a life of sacrificial service for the sake of others. That's discipleship. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to follow Jesus in, into service of those around you. It's to follow Jesus in this, this Godward humility by giving of yourself for, for God, for your neighbor, and even for your enemy, we find as we read through Matthew. So to be a disciple, on the one hand, it is to be a learner. It's what the word means. It's to come to Jesus and to learn from Him but not just to fill our heads with knowledge. I'm not against theology, right? I'm not against knowledge, but our learning has a goal. It's to become like Jesus, to follow after him in self-sacrifice for the sake of others. So a disciple is one who learns and begins to form new habits of living that reflect Jesus rather than the world around us. And Jesus uses two phrases here in the Great Commission to flesh out make disciples. The initial step in the life of of discipleship is baptism, Jesus says. Baptism is is an entrance into a new way of life. Baptism is not the end point of something, but the beginning. It's the beginning of a life of discipleship, a life of learning from and following after Jesus. And the nations, Jesus says, are to be baptized in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the point is not so much having the right ceremonial formula, 
The point is that, that by baptism, we enter into discipleship of the one triune God, the, the one God with the one name who consists of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so a disciple is one who enters into a life of, of learning by, by baptism and then learns to live a life of obedience to King Jesus. Jesus says, teach them to observe, obey, all that I have commanded you. So a disciple is one who seeks to obey King Jesus. Now, now some of you may think that the word obedience is a dirty word. We in the church sometimes give the impression that obedience is somehow contrary to grace, that it's an either-or. Either God loves us by His grace, or we are to obey Him. I can assure you that that is not the case. Jesus, of course, is not saying that we, we save ourselves through obedience. He's not saying that the Father loves us because of our obedience. He's not saying that we can only be His disciples if we first achieve a certain level of obedience. We are first baptized into this way of life, and then we begin to truly learn what that means. Jesus went to the cross to bear sin, right? That we might be accepted and acceptable to the Father. And in light of His work, we are cleansed. That's what baptism signifies, our cleansing of sin. Cleansing from, from both guilt and both the guilt and the power of sin. It's a cleansing that we receive daily as we confess our sins daily. We are cleansed and made right by the blood of Jesus. But through that cleansing, we then enter into a life of discipleship, a life of learning to obey King Jesus. Now, again, we're in kind of a, a culture, our whole culture, but particularly the academic culture, it's a culture of grading scales where we're always asking the question, right, did I get an A, did I get a B, is it a, a C, is it a, a D minus, right, did I pass, did I fail? We're always thinking about these things. And sometimes when we hear obedience, we tend to think that Jesus is standing there with a red pen just waiting to put a big F on our lives. But of course, Jesus has already made the grade for us, right, by his righteous life. He's already taken the blame for our failure in the cross. The law no longer has that kind of sting on us. And so then why do we talk about obedience to his commands? Well, Jesus is setting up a new order, a new way of life, a new way of living outside of the, the me-against-you world in which we live. And Jesus' new order, it's, it's not pass-fail, you're not getting a grade, but once we enter into a life of discipleship, we're on the, on the way, on the path, on the road. And the point is not to agonize about where we are not, but to focus on where we're going. And of course, that takes time. It takes time because learning takes time. Learning is a process. Growth is a process. So the Christian life is a, a process of learning to obey King Jesus. It doesn't happen all at once. So a disciple is one who, who through faith, through, through baptism, has entered into this new way of life. This may or may not change what you do, but it will radically change how you do what you do. As you begin to represent this new order of things under King Jesus, as you begin to represent Jesus in every aspect of your life. And so this, this is the goal. This is the goal of Jesus' commission, right? He wants to make disciples who, who live as members of this new order, of this new kingdom, who submit to a new king in every aspect of their lives. How does that happen? How do we make disciples, right? We've, we've looked through the commission once, looking at the goal, defining discipleship. We're going to pass through it a second time. Uh, looking at the method, how do we then make disciples? 
There are two ways that we often get this very wrong, two ways that this passage is misread. And the first goes like this. Uh, Jesus gave his great commission to the eleven. The eleven were leaders in the church. Therefore, Jesus' commission here to make disciples is fulfilled exclusively by leaders in the church. I've actually had someone say to me that uh, me as the pastor on Sunday morning, that is when the Great Commission is fulfilled, period. It's kind of this lone ranger mentality of ministry, right? The pastor is the guy who does the ministry. Everybody else is just there to support him. This may extend to other kinds of ordained people or officially commissioned missionaries, but not to lay people, right? It's just the pastor, the, 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 the ordained people. They're the ones who do the real work. There's another view, which is the complete opposite end, that says discipleship takes place simply when one person, quote, disciples another. Uh, one Christian takes another Christian under their wing, teaches them how to do the Christian life. And in this view of, of discipleship, in this view of the Great Commission, um, it's pretty much a one-on-one -on -one thing. It doesn't really require the church at all. So the one view is kind of this lone ranger clergy view, and the other view is this lone ranger discipler view. But neither view appreciates, I think, the fullness of the ministry of the whole community of the church. The, the plan for disciple-making in Matthew 28 is really the plan that we see enacted throughout uh, the book of Acts, and it's the plan that is then described in the epistles, it's the same plan Paul describes, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, there in Ephesians 4, Paul says that Jesus gave certain leaders to the church, including pastors and teachers, to equip the saints to build up the body. So that as a whole body, as the whole body speaks the truth in love, the whole body grows up in Christ. So this involves the whole church, right? There are teachers in the church doing the work of teaching so that the body builds itself up in love as each member speaks to one another and encourages one another and uses their gifts of ministering to one another. What that means is each person has a role in Jesus' mission. We ourselves each submit to Jesus' authority as we sit under teachers in the church, as we're taught to live in Jesus' new order of things. We demonstrate Jesus' authority as we, as we live in obedience to Him in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. We proclaim Jesus' authority as we tell people about his death and his resurrection, as we take every opportunity to share the good news that Jesus has conquered sin and death in his resurrection from the dead. And we encourage one another in this new life as we talk to each other in the church about the grace of God for us in Christ and how that connects with the struggles and the trials of our daily lives. Every member doing their part in ministering to one another and to the world. Now, let me emphasize what this plan is not. Uh, Jesus' method for his mission does not use coercion or force. You know, unlike mo most kings who conquer with a sword, Jesus came bringing the good news of the restoration of the world as it was meant to be. That restoration began in his resurrection. And Jesus' kingdom then spreads as we proclaim that the restoration has begun. Jesus has been exalted as king. If we believe in him, our sins can be forgiven, and we gain the hope of entering into the fullness of life at Jesus' return. You see, the method of Jesus' mission is it's not conquering and killing. It's not threatening and coercing. It's not even winning arguments. But it's baptizing and teaching. It's proclaiming the risen Jesus. It's, it's baptizing those who believe in him. It's teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. 
So a disciple is one who through faith and, and baptism enters into a new way of life, serving King Jesus, and each disciple is then called to participate in the work of making disciples by showing and telling the authority of Jesus in a way consistent with, with who you are, with where you live, with your circumstances in which you find yourselves. So the goal is make disciples, and the method is, is, is baptize and teach. It's, it's word of mouth. It's telling people about our risen Lord. What about the scope of Jesus' mission? Well, in some ways, the scope is, is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You may remember Jesus back in, in Matthew chapter 10 sent out the 12 and he, he told them not to go to the Gentiles, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus' mission began with the nation of Israel. But now that Jesus has accomplished his messianic work in defeating sin at the cross, now that he's received universal authority, Jesus sends his disciples to all nations. The message of Jesus' kingship is, is not for the Jewish people only, right? Jesus is king of the nations. His kingship is not limited to one ethnicity or one culture or one people group, but it extends to the nations, to black and white, to Asian and African, to North American and South American, to Russian and Turkish and Syrian. Jesus has risen from the dead as king. He has been given authority over the whole earth, and all people everywhere are now called to repent and submit to King Jesus. So the goal is make disciples, people who follow after Jesus. The method is, is, is baptize and teach, proclaim the risen Lord. The scope is universal. It's all nations, all people, everywhere. I want to add this one last thing, which is a safeguard to Jesus' mission, to understanding it. The last phrase of uh, the Great Commission is essential. Not the very last phrase of the the. the the book, we'll get to that in a minute, but the last command, uh, last phrase of the command, Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. You know, so often the name of Jesus gets kind of co-opted by our agendas. Uh, I confuse the mission of Jesus with my party's political agenda, or I confuse the mission of Jesus with my nation's political agenda, or I confuse the mission of Jesus with my theological agenda, or I confuse the mission of Jesus with my cultural agenda or my personal agenda. But Jesus sends his disciples out to do what? To teach people to obey all that he has commanded them. No more, no less. Right? We proclaim what Jesus has commanded. And it's so important that we keep, thus says the Lord, separate from, this is a good idea I had. That we keep the American culture and American morals and American politics distinct in our minds from, this is what the Lord says. Jesus wants us to go and teach people to submit to his authority in his kingdom by obeying everything that he has taught. Because he is a king who comes to serve us, to forgive our sins, and then bring us into this new way of living, this new order of things. Well, if you've listened to all this, you may be overwhelmed. You may think, I'm not sure I can observe all that Jesus has commanded, much less teach other people to do the same. Well, first, remember, right, this, is, this is not all on your shoulders. This is, this is what the church does, what we do together, each part fulfilling its own role. You're not in this alone. 
So often we think about the Great Commission as something people do on their own. You go and you do this thing. We need to figure out how we can be doing this together, how we can be proclaiming Jesus together, how we can be discipling people together. But second, I feel your pain. <laughs> Acutely, I feel your pain. Which brings us to the final words in the book and the last point on our outline, which is about Jesus' presence. The last words that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew are, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is saying that he will somehow be with his people throughout this whole age, which began with his resurrection and which will come to a climax at his return. Jesus will be with us throughout this time. Now, if, there were no, if Jesus in no other place claimed to be God, if, he, if there were no, no other place in Scripture where Jesus claimed deity, right here you have Jesus claiming to be divine. This would be enough right here. Because Jesus is taking the words of God from the Old Testament and putting them on his own lips. You may remember God sent Moses into Egypt to free Israel from slavery. And Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God responds, I will be with you. After the death of Moses, God says to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. God sent Moses into Egypt with the promise of his presence. God sent Joshua into the promised land with the promise of his presence. And now Jesus sends his disciples to the nations with the promise of his presence. His presence. Jesus is saying, I am the God who will be with you. Jesus is claiming to be the divine presence with his people. And he comes to be with us, of course, by sending his spirit to the church. You see that clearly in the book of Acts where Jesus pours out his spirit on his people. And so we really have this amazingly rich Trinitarian passage, not just the baptismal formula in the Great Commission, but the whole passage. The Father gives authority, the authority of heaven and earth to the incarnate Son. We baptize then in the triune name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the Son uh, comes to be with his people by sending his spirit into our midst. What is the effect of that? What is the effect of Jesus' presence in our midst? Well, think again about Joshua chapter 1. The, the whole section is, is a foreshadow of the Great Commission. After the death of Moses, God tells Joshua he is given the land. And he instructs him to keep all the law of Moses. And he tells him not to fear because he will be with him as he was with Moses. Now Joshua is to go in and take the land. We come to Matthew 28, after the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, God has given Jesus, not just the land of Canaan, but the heavens and the earth. And Jesus now instructs us to keep his commandments and to teach others to do the same. And he tells us essentially not to fear, but to be bold and to be strong and to be courageous because Jesus will be with us. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For Jesus, the risen Lord our God, is with us wherever we go. And now we are to go into the land. We are to go to all creation. We are to go to all nations, to our friends and our family, to our neighbors and our co-workers, to our classmates and our casual acquaintances. And we are to take the land, not by conquering with a sword, but by proclaiming the risen Jesus so that people willingly and voluntarily, by the power of the presence of Jesus with us, submit to baptism and enter into this new way of life. Is the task daunting? <laughs> yes. 
Jesus has commanded us to take the land. Not the promised land by force, but the world through the gospel to bring all peoples into submission to their true king. But it is he who accomplishes that work through us as we live in obedience to him. That happens as we obey him in everything that he has commanded. It involves the elders and I in this church teaching and training. It involves each one of us living out the grace of God where we live and where we work each day. It involves us praying for the lost, that they would come to know Jesus. It involves us repenting and confessing our failures and our sins. It involves us going and telling of the risen Christ, who has conquered sin and defeated death, until the whole world bows their knee to Jesus. That's, of course, where we're going. That's the picture that Paul gives us in Philippians, that one day, when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess will confess Jesus as the risen King of heaven and earth to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we want to see, we want to see Jesus with the eyes of faith, risen and exalted and ascended to your right hand and seated on that throne, ruling over heaven and earth, having put all his enemies under his feet. Yet we know that in one sense he is doing that as the gospel goes forth and as people hear of of his life and his death and his, his resurrection, as people bow their knee to him and confess him as Lord and confess him as King. Father, we pray that you would use us, use us so that others would come to know of our risen King who has authority to forgive sins who has accomplished his work in the cross and is now reigning in heaven. Father, help us to see that. Help us to proclaim that. Use us in this place so that many others would come to know. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to know of our risen King Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.